This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Tax time is fast approaching. Do you still paper file? A lot of Zoomers do. The CRA has been on a big push to move as many people as possible to e-filing. Canada Revenue has made changes to simplify the instructions and added notes about new benefits for the 2019 tax year and include a checklist so nothing gets missed. It seems like good news. Libby checked in with a couple of members of the Zoomer squad, Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media. I think it's very good news because it uh, recognizes that um, many people, and I don't think just Zoomers, I don't think just older people, still do prefer uh, paper. And having uh, done it myself and also done it with the help of others uh, both ways, I can tell you that the paper instructions in the past were not a model of clarity and uh, helpfulness. So that's right. If they're making it more user friendly, uh, that might mean that there's some consciousness there of the customer and not just the, uh, you know, indifference to that. Well, and the one thing that stood out to me is um, that, you know, that they'll be making it easier for individuals who are filing their taxes to know what benefits they qualify for. And we know that hundreds of millions of dollars every year go unclaimed in benefits and government benefits that people are eligible for, but they just don't know about it. So by making this process easier, more streamlined, I think that that can only be a good thing. Uh, but, you know, to David's point, not only for Zoomers, but all Canadians. Well, it's interesting because a lot of the people who paper file uh, are Zoomers, yes, seniors, and they need you need to file your taxes to to get a lot of the benefits that you are owed. That's right. So it's not just a matter I don't know any taxes, so I won't file. You'll be missing out on cash, and it's difficult to know exactly what is what. And as you said, those instructions, well, you know, you have to know what you're doing. That's right. You may qualify for GIS or, or OAS. And maybe you're not being sent the right amount of CPP because you haven't filed your taxes properly. So this sounds like it's a good initiative, worthwhile initiative on the part of the government to do. I, I, I just, uh, not a, not to throw cold water on it, but it, it may be a positive sign that they're paying a little bit more attention to the consumer because last month it was revealed that in the annual um, mystery shopper uh, phone of CRA when they when people phone the CRA on behalf of the government researching whether they get the right advice or not. I think the inaccurate advice score was over thirty percent. So when, even when you call them, they often don't know what to tell you properly. So maybe they are trying to get ahead of that finally. Yeah, which would be welcome. <laughs> and now, Definitely. Marissa, you brought up a question that I do not know the answer to because it's been a while since I've actually been to a CRA location. And you were saying that you don't know if they make available paper copies that people have to download them. Is that right? I mean, I don't know. 
Well, I, I I put the question to you because I also I wasn't entirely sure, but but so I'm 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 pretty sure I, quite a few years ago they eliminated sending everyone paper copies of their tax filing. Now you'd have to go on the website um, and download it, or you could go to your local post office and request it, or you know any Service Canada outlet or, outlet for that matter to re- to request a. A filing, and I know that that was a problem at the time back in 2011 when you know there were fears that they would eliminate that process altogether, and that was because you know many people don't live in urban centers; they may not have access to the internet, might not be readily available for them to be able, and they looked forward to their tax filing being sent to them in the mail. On the other hand, I understand that the government, you know, many people chose to move toward electronic filings because for those that are familiar with how to do that, it can be more efficient. Um, and so the government was wasting a lot of money sending out those paper filings. Okay, I also, I mean, also wonder if, did they know, did they say that people who had been filing the paper returns, there was this groundswell of opposition or confusion or problem? We do like, know that there are millions of dollars in unclaimed, unclaimed benefits yeah. every year. And so what can the government do to, to entice people to make their filings? Assuming they want to. Assuming that they're not just quietly happy not to have to shell out that money. The Zoomer Squad's David Kravitz and Marissa Lennox. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Kopsick for Jane Brown. Mere hours after police moved in to enforce an injunction and remove a rail blockade near Belleville, others popped up affecting GO Train service. To discuss the security and safety implications, as well as economic fallout from the blockades, Libby was joined by Ted Mallett, Chief Economist at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and Phil Gursky, a threat and risk consultant and a former strategic analyst at CSIS. I want to tip my hat to the OPP and to the RCMP out west and other law enforcement agencies that have done this really well. I, I think that they've really done so carefully. It is a sensitive issue. We've had times in the past when it, when it has not gone well. I mean, I'm sure your listeners remember Wash and Burnt Church out of New Brunswick and Caledonia near Hamilton. And, you know, those were occasions on which, unfortunately, it did descend into uh, violence. So far, that does not seem to be the case. Uh, it's not over yet, as you're, I'm sure you're well aware, Libby. But they've been pretty patient. And I think that, as the Prime Minister said, that it's time for the barricades to come down. And the, the law enforcement agencies did what we pay them to do, and that is keep law and keep order. So, I, again, I tip off my hat to them. What else will have to happen before these areas are clear? Well, I think that the people that are responsible for the barricades have to recognize, yes, they've made their point, and in a democracy, you have that right. We've all heard what they have to say. Okay, let's keep, let's keep this conversation going, but, and, I'll, and I'll defer to, to, to my other guests on the economy, but this is having a very significant effect on the Canadian economy, jobs, supplies, things like that. And I think that those parties that are responsible for the disruption – have to, you know what, okay, we've done this, let's move on to stage two, which is continue to talk about this, and dismantle the barricades. It's as simple as that. Ted Mallett, we've seen various numbers. We've seen up to $425 million a day. Andrew Shear just used a figure of $70 billion. Uh, what's your assessment of the economic damage? At this point, I don't think we can come up with a clear sense of uh, dollars and cents numbers. We just know that Businesses that are affected are affected a lot, and there's there's a lot of unevenness uh, out there. There are particular businesses that may be getting most of their products shipped by uh, uh, by by boat or by truck, and they may not be directly affected at this point. But others that uh, uh, just 
may be uh, tied in with the rail networks uh, more than they had thought before. Uh, there are businesses, uh, agriculture businesses, that are waiting for propane, and uh, uh, if they don't get another shipment soon, then their their uh, their chicken farm is in danger uh, of, uh, of of freezing. They heat they, they heat their barns with uh, with propane. Uh, there's another business that uh, is about possibly losing a contract for $100,000 because it can't get the, the input product it needs in order to fulfill that contract. Uh, and others, uh, there's a restaurant owner in Western Canada waiting for uh, goods from overseas to complete renovations. So their business is out of, uh, out of business until they actually get this, uh, uh, this, this particular shipment. So businesses that are affected are affected a lot, and that's, uh, that's really problematic from, uh, from the standpoint now that we're entering into uh, pretty much uh, uh, the, the, the third week of protest. Phil Gursky, you know, there have been public opinion polls, and, and while most Canadians want these blockades to end and don't agree with them, most people do agree that Indigenous people have had a very bad deal. And I'm just wondering, the fact that it's taken so long to even begin to deal with this. Do you think that it has emboldened protesters uh, who now are thinking, well, we can shut things down for a very extended period of time without consequence? I think the answer is potentially yes. You know, for, for some people, this whole issue is analogous to an existential threat, right? They see climate change, global warming, the pipeline is going to contribute to that. And therefore, if they don't stop this and projects like this across Canada and around the world, we're basically digging our own graves as as a civilization. So I think there are a lot of people who truly are convinced of this and are convinced that the time for action is now. We can't wait another 10 years, five years, whatever. We have to implement changes starting immediately. So I'm not so sure that the actual length of the protests, had they been shorter or longer, would embolden people. I think we're entering a time period where there certainly are parties out there who, as I said, are absolutely 100%. They believe that we, we, we have to take action now. And you know what? We'll, we'll have to do what we have to do. And if it means breaking the law, it means breaking the law. So I, I guess we're going we're gonna to have to wait for that. But this is where I think this... And, and, it, what, and the other interesting part of these protests is that it's not just Indigenous people, right? You yeah. do have climate activists as part of it. You have other groups that are part of it. So it's almost like it's become an, an umbrella for a bunch of people with somewhat similar but also somewhat disparate positions and, and, and ideas to get together and try and stop things. So we'll see where that whole thing goes in the weeks and months to come as well. Phil Gursky, a threat and risk consultant and former strategic analyst with CSIS, and Ted Mallett of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. Breakfast Radio's Neil Headley may have summed up the rail blockade's best likening the situation to a game of whack-a-mole. One comes down, another pops up. The fight-back strategy panel, Charles Bird, Karen Stintz, and John Capobianco weighed in. The comment about it being a whack-a-mole is quite fitting in some in some ways because unfortunately what you're seeing is the one one being taken down in in, in Tyndanaga and uh, near Belleville there, uh, but now we've got one sort of that's sprung up in in Hamilton uh, that is affecting the go uh, rail and go station and the go bus or go trains uh, from Hamilton to Niagara Falls, which is now hurting you know individual people, not only businesses as we saw with respect to the CN rail uh, blockade where a lot of businesses were being 
being affected because of the the rail blockage. But now you're seeing tra- uh, passengers being affected. So it's an unfortunate situation. I'm not sure how it's going to get resolved. I think the prime minister, uh, in his comment, uh, you know, basically saying that he was frustrated with the talks. He, you know, f- finding that nothing was getting done, it wasn't being successful, uh, and that he wanted to ensure that the injunctions were being upheld uh, and enforced, uh, and also demanding that the blockades be clear is one thing, but there was no plan and no specific plan from him as to how to do it other than to say, well, it's up to the provinces now for them to be able to enforce it. Charles, did he do the right thing? I mean, I would have thought that the police would be prepared for this to happen. Yeah, I, let's let's be clear. Law enforcement learned a lot from the lessons of Ipperwash and Oka and have taken uh, a markedly different approach to these types of situations than has been the case in the past. There's a lot of thought and sophistication that's gone into how the police um, approach uh, protest uh, camps such as the ones we've seen over recent days. But I mean, the fundamental truth is, is, is a simple one, which is that the prime minister devoted as much effort and energy towards meaningful dialogue as he felt was sustainable, um, devoted the better part of three weeks to doing just that. But obviously the economic impacts are, are, are very real. And um, it was appropriate for him to signal that the barricades must now come down. And I noticed that the prime minister was and the government were also successful in finding alternate rail uh, links to circumvent barricades in some cases in uh, disputed areas. And uh, so that's a positive. But the the reality and I, I don't want to go on too long, but, you know, if I were to ask you folks or your listeners, you know, what is it that would take, cause you to take up arms against your government or what is it that would take you to barricade a rail line? Um, you know, we, we'd all be hard pressed to, to answer either of those questions. But the answer is pretty straightforward. The inability to feed your children, the seeing your rights consistently subjugated in favor of other interests. I mean, these are the kinds of things that drive people to the brink. And that's where a million Indigenous Canadians are right now. Yeah, I'm going to disagree with Charles on that one, actually, (laughs) because what we, uh, I think the Prime Minister in his speech on Friday, he actually delineated, he made a distinction between the Aboriginals who were protesting for what they believed to be the improper use of their land versus protesters that were protesting other matters, such as environmental matters, uh, Valcrove protesters, protesters coming up from the U.S. So what we're seeing now is splinter groups protesting now in support of Mohawk groups that have been removed from the Belleville area in support of this group and support of that group. And so now we have a situation where, like, once again, no, we, we're, there is no one to negotiate with, that all of these groups that are now popping up have individual agendas. And I don't think it's as clear cut as Charles may like to believe. And that this group in Belleville, they actually are not in Belleville, pardon me, outside of Hamilton. They actually were served an injunction, which they lit on fire. Yep. They so did. they're not, they are not negotiating that for my from my naive perspective, that is not a negotiation that wants to take place. So the police know this and we can't, from my perspective, allow two more weeks to f- try to figure out what to do. That I, I agree that you don't give a hard timeline because then the groups know that you're coming in and they'll be prepared for it. That being said, you should be clear with this has got to happen by this point. Otherwise, this is the consequence if this doesn't happen. And we don't have two more weeks to wait and have more negotiations with groups that aren't interested in negotiating. The Fight Back Strategy Panel, Karen Stintz, John Capobianco, and Charles Byrd. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Comsick. 
Important news if you or a loved one is living with diabetes, and this affects a million and a half in Ontario alone. A number of the most common drugs used to control blood sugar, which contain metformin, have been recalled. It's because of concerns they contain an impurity that could be potentially cancerous. That compound is known as NDMA, an organic compound that was apparently found in large quantities in these medication levels that were too high, according to the government, and that could be carcinogenic above a certain threshold. Last year, a number of heart drugs were recalled for the same reason. Libby asked family physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel and pharmacist Dean Miller, what do you do if you need those medicines? Right now, Libby, it's, uh, it, it's very small. And it's, and it's really isolated to two companies. Now, these are fairly significant companies. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that sh- everybody should know is, you know, one of the metformin products is the extended release uh, product, which isn't used all that much. And the company uh, that just got the most recent recall, which was uh, uh, late Monday, was uh, a company that has that manufactures the metformin, the regular one that everybody that you were saying, you know, very commonly used. Um, now, if that starts to expand, and typically these things, it, you know, that's just the way it goes. You know, it starts with one company and uh, it, it moves from there. Um, this could be probably. Okay, you know, things go the way I think they might. It could be the biggest uh, recall that we've seen in pharmacy in many, many a year. Iris, uh, how many of your patients have diabetes and are being treated with metformin? And what does that mean in your practice? We have a huge population of diabetics within the practice. And although I couldn't tell you an exact number, it probably represents around 10% of the practice, wow. which is hundreds of patients. Um, and it's very concerning. Considering that 80 to 90% of active pharmaceutical ingredients originate in China, so consider that for a moment, and that when we have, in fact, looked at recalls before, they were recalls of entire categories of compounds. So I don't know how many of you had been on Valsartan. Valsartan was recalled for the same reason. We saw a similar thing with ranitidine, which is one of the most common drugs. You can purchase that over the counter to control heartburn and ulcers. And now we're seeing it for metformin. But to be fair, for those of you who are taking it, we are not asking you to stop the medication cold turkey. And in fact, Health Canada has looked at the amounts and then said it just like in a lifetime of taking it, if you take it for a lifetime, it just exceeds the amount that's recommended. So a small amount of this is actually considered acceptable, but they're exceeding that amount. So this is not like oh my gosh, it's an emergency, stop it immediately. It's not like that. But if we have substitutions that we can make, we want to make them. The hard thing about it for me as a family doctor is that metformin is a first-line drug. So what do I do? You know, of course, I attend to the lifestyle factors for patients who are diabetics, you know, including looking at their diet, making sure they're doing their proper exercise, because that matters a lot in diabetes. But the first-line drug is actually metformin. I think, Lily, it's probably important to note right now there's no shortage of metformin. Like There, there hasn't really been a, a shortage that we've seen at the pharmacy level yet. I mean, but that's going to depend on how this recall rolls out, right? So if it gets bigger and more companies are involved, it's going to get bigger and a potential shortage could exist. But right now, metformin is still readily available. You know, other companies, different lot numbers, 
Was it the same problem in the ranitidine too? Yeah, this NDMA, you know, was the issue with the Valsartan yep. drugs and the Sartan drugs and also with ranitidine and now with metformin. So there's obviously, uh, you know, a root problem here that originates, you know, overseas with the active ingredients. You know, there are several problems, challenges that Health Canada faces when trying to oversee manufacturing processes in, co- in a country like China. Given that 80 to 90 percent of active pharmaceutical ingredients originate in China, I ask you to consider Health Canada's challenge, cultural challenges, language challenges, barriers in terms of how they're expected to do their inspections. So it's, it's difficult. Understand, Health Canada is saying it is a lifetime, over a lifetime it exceeded the amount that, of the carcinogen that they would want. So in truth, how much would another month or two make? Probably not that much of a difference. So just if there is trouble there, you don't want to stop an essential drug. Wait. If you can't get it and you don't have an option, he should continue the drug and then, you know, seek help when you return. Family physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel and pharmacist Dean Miller. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio and here are some of the best calls of the week. Howie in Kitchener is left scratching his head over paper filing his taxes. I'm a senior. I've been doing my own tax returns by mail, paper, for 65 years. And a couple years ago, they gave you the option on your return, do you want to do it email and or online or, or by mail? I went with mail. So I got my return in the mail automatically, and I'm going through it, and it's so much different than last year's. The format has changed. The lines have changed. There's much more information there that I don't understand. It refers you back and forth to different topics. It's, it's so different than last year and the year before and the year before that. George in Bowmanville is a tax preparer. So I do tax returns for seniors uh, on a volunteer basis for our uh, local community area. And we do get the uh, form through the mail. The only thing is this year there are no... Secondary forms, there are the, the major parts of the forms are there, but there's none of the backup ones. I, I, I do find it a little tricky finding all the pages in the right order, so to speak, but uh, I've, I've done it, and no problem. And what I've done, on what I, as far as my forms are concerned, I've been photocopying the pages that are missing so that uh, the people I'm doing them for has got at least a backup to work with. Joan and Tilsenberg shared her home care experience. I am 81 years old, and my morning care partner's 90% successful. My paramed in the evening, I've had for six months, and I have now missed 46 nights of visits. And I was told I would miss every second weekend because there's nobody to come unless they came at 2 o'clock in the afternoon to get me ready for bed. Well, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm hardly dressed for the day, (laughs) and they want to come and get me ready for bed. So, of course, I said no, so they told my care coordinator that I had declined service. Well, she knew I hadn't declined service because she knows my situation. I am paralyzed. I don't move anything except an index finger and mostly my tongue. 
And my husband at 82, he's wearing out. I call myself now a disposable senior citizen. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dave in Toronto, who pulled back the CRA curtain. I used to work for the CRA, and uh, training there used to be phenomenal. Uh, there was very little, uh, when people phoned in, there was very little misinformation given. Uh, that has changed over the years. I'm still in contact with people that work there. And there's absolutely little or no training given to some people when they go on the phones. So that uh, the quality of the, of the product is not there that it used to be. You used to be able to walk into a CRA office, one of the tax services offices, and get information at the counter. They've closed that down. Uh, Prime Minister Harper closed that many years ago. And there's lots of people like myself or seniors who need to walk in and talk to somebody, not over a phone. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, also 96.7 FM, downtown. Or, if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fightback. The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.